Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia as we are broadcast across the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, as well as anywhere you like to listen to podcasts, as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their work. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. And we are talking to uh, author Robert Gwaltney today about his brand new novel. It's called The Cicada Tree, and it is a wonderful story about some fascinating characters set in the 1950s in the segregated South that you're going to want to add to your to-be-read list. And I'm so excited to have Robert on uh, to talk about the book with us here today. And Robert joins us as a graduate of Florida State University. He was he uh, graduated from there. He currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. By day, he serves as the vice president of the Easter Seals North Georgia Incorporated Organization, which is a nonprofit that strengthens children and their families during the most critical times in their development. Through his nonprofit work, he's a champion for early childhood literacy, and he also serves as the fiction editor for the Blue Mountain Review. And in between doing those things, he writes. And we are delighted to have uh, Robert Gwaltney with us today on Now Appalachia to talk to us about his sensational new novel, The Cicada Tree. So, Robert, welcome to Now Appalachia. Thank you so much, Elliot. I'm happy to be here. So glad to have you here. And uh, so many things I want to ask you about uh, uh, about this really great book, and, and so we'll get right to it. But before we get into the book specifically, I, I wanted to ask you a question about something that I saw you state uh, in an interview when someone was asking you about your book and why you wrote this book, uh, The Cicada Tree. You said one of the reasons you wrote this book is because you wanted to write a book that you would like to read. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and, and, and how you felt as you were doing uh, the draft and putting this book together and why it was important to write the book, given that that feeling that you had. Sure. Well, you know, I think I, I told someone recently when they were trying to decide what they wanted to write next. And I said, well, I think that that when you set out to write a book um, and that whole process of writing a book is a bit like a marriage or a, a long term relationship. So you better um, like the story that you're going to tell because you're going to be with it for a while. <laughs> and I, would, I always I felt like um, rather than you know look towards what's really commercial, um, write what I'm most passionate about, and hope that it would resonate and um, also not only resonate with readers but also have commercial viability as well. So I just yeah just set out to write a story that that I wanted to tell something that sort of that novel that I've been looking for that that I haven't been able to find, and, and that's sort of how the cicada tree came to be. Fantastic. And, you know, your book has been categorized as sort of classified as Southern Gothic literature, which is a, a unique sort of subgenre uh, in fiction and in some ways in Appalachian fiction. And, you know, one of the themes that we oftentimes see in that kind of work and people that are familiar with, with David Joy and Ron Rash um, uh, and, and even going back to some of Flannery O'Connor's stories, if you want to go back even further than that, you know, one of the themes that, that emerges kind of in Southern Gothic literature is the fact that, um, Wherever the story takes place, uh, the the sins of people's pasts have kind of permeated the place 
where the story is located. And it's the current people that live there who are kind of uh, having to carry that on their backs, metaphorically speaking, and work through that, that terrible past or that troubled past uh, that previous generations have kind of seeped into the ground, for lack of a better uh, way to express that or explain it. And I wanted to know um, how that, that kind of theme applies to, to what we see in your story with your characters in terms of uh, trying to, uh, to, to deal with, uh, and you have a lot of younger characters uh, in your story, which we'll talk about in a minute, but how, how they're kind of uh, adhering to that theme of having to live in this environment and, and live in this community uh, and deal with the sins of, of the previous generation's past. How does that kind of work its way into a lot of the things that you write about in your book? Sure. So definitely, you know, I, um, so it is categorized as um, Southern Gothic fiction, I think with elements of magical realism. And um, someone said that they thought that it was a bit surrealist in places, which they, they enjoyed. Um, and, and even some people call it historical fiction. And I guess that's just because it, it takes place in the 1950s. But sort of, sort of that, so the cicada tree, you know, being Southern fiction, there, there, there are secrets that are discovered along the way. And um, for me, thematically, um, the cicadas, um, I sort of came up with my own mythology for the cicada. You know, they're, they're nymphs that are, that are sort of hibernating um, beneath the ground, listening and um, collecting people's secrets. Um, only to rise to the surface later and to bring them forth out into the world. And so that's thematically um, how I sort of dug into to that definition of Southern Gothic that you just referenced. Excellent. Very good. So let's talk about, about, about your characters and, and kind of what's going on uh, in this particular story, because we have, we have a fascinating set of characters that uh, bring together so many different personality traits. They come from different uh, racial backgrounds, socioeconomic uh, status backgrounds. I wanted to ask you first about your protagonist, Annalise, and I made some notes about her as I was reading, and I, I wrote that she was self-centered, jealous, conniving, and impetuous, and then I drew a little arrow and wrote basically a teenager or a teenage yes. girl, uh, <laughs> and then you kind of pit her or kind of have an, a foil character for her um, in a girl named Etta May, who's just, just very sweet. She's kind of naive to some degree, uh, but she has a totally different life uh, than kind of Annalise has. So tell us a little bit about Annalise. Tell us a little bit about Etta May and, and what it is, what brings them together, and why is it that they uh, kind of remain close throughout the story? Sure. So, so Etta May and Annalise know each other because of their mothers. And um, the, when the story opens, Etta May's mother. So Etta May is, is a young black girl and her, her mother um, is dead. And, and it's not really explained what happened other than it's hinted at that it might've been uh, by fire. Um, so Annalise's mother and Etta May's mother both worked at, um, in Providence, Georgia at the Mayfield Pickle Company. Um, uh, Annalise's mother, Grace Newell, um, worked at, um, at the white packing tables and Etta May's mother, uh, Callie worked at the uh, black packing tables in the pickle factory, and um, uh, it's Miss uh, it's Miss Wesley, who's Edamay's grandmother, who um, who is folded into the family um, after her daughter dies. And um, Annalise is, uh, I would say, the Newell family is not quite in abject poverty, but they certainly. Um, uh, have have difficulties making ends meet. 
So, so Miss Wesley is sort of a, a secondary means of support and sort of another grandmother to, to Annalise. So that's how um, Annalise and Edame come to know one another is through the relationship um, with their, with, between their mothers. Very, very good. And I know that one of the things that, that, that is interesting uh, is that Annalise's, Annalise's mother uh, is working several jobs. And one of those jobs is, I believe, sort of being a housekeeper or a part-time maid to another family uh, that you portray so well in the novel. And this is a family on the other end of the spectrum in terms of socioeconomic status and financial means. Can, can you tell us about who she's working for and, and what that family is like? And they have a daughter that Annalise kind of comes across uh, and gets to know in the story. Tell us a little bit about who that sure. family is and who she is, the daughter. Sure. So, so the story, you know, takes place in 1956 and it, it's an adult Annalise looking back on the summer of 1956 when she turned 11. And, um, and it's the summer that she meets the wealthy Mayfield family for the very first time. And the, the Mayfield family, they own the Mayfield Pickle Company. Um, they own the local bank. Uh, they have ties throughout the state of Georgia. So they're very connected. But the, the Mayfield family, they possess this sort of otherworldly um almost supernatural beauty that that um that the others just refer to as that Mayfield shine and so it's um so Grace Annalise's mother uh, works at the Mayfield Pickle Company but she also on occasion will go out on the weekends and she will um, clean um, the house um for the Mayfields and um, it is on this particular day during the summer that, that Annalise has the opportunity to go with her mother to Mistletoe, which is the Mayfield Plantation. Um, Grace was uh, of the impression that the Mayfields will not be there. Um, and it's, it's, it's this moment, the inciting incident for the whole novel really is that moment that Annalise meets Cordelia Mayfield, who's the matriarch of the family. And there's this really peculiar ex exchange, almost violent exchange between the two of them that really sets out this obsession within Annalise. And uh, Cordelia has a daughter named Marlissa who is the exact same age as, as Annalise. Excellent, and, and we'll come back and talk about that uh, uh, in just a second too, because, because that sets a whole new set of circumstances going forward uh, in the story once that, that relationship develops between the two. But you know, one of the things I loved about your, your book too, uh, Robert, when we were thinking about this, this story is that that imagery is so rich and so well done, but there's an imagery of sound that kind of permeates a, a lot of the story. And, and I wrote or I noted something uh, in the book, and, and this is something that uh, Annalise mentions uh, since the book's kind of told in first person from her perspective. And, and I just wanted to, to read this quote, and just have you talk a little bit about sound imagery and how it works. And, and she, when she's talking about Miss Wessie, uh, Annalise says, I imagine Miss Wessie's boom, boom hips as I listened to the crinkle of the grocery bags. I hummed the sound of her walk to myself. It calmed me, helped me think through the fear. Boom, boom, crinkle. Uh, and there's just several passages like that uh, of sound, sound imagery that kind of permeate the story. Um, and a lot of allusions to song titles as well throughout your novel. So why is that and what kind of effect were you going for by, by working that in there and, uh, and and what will readers notice as they come across those passages uh, in the book right well so so Aunt Annalise's father Claxton Newell um, owns the bait and tackle on the river which turns into a honky-tonk at night and her father is um, 
um, sort of plays river rabble music. He's really good on the piano. But uh, Annalise didn't really ever um, have to take lessons. She's a bit of a piano prodigy. So there's this reference that she's always had this music deep, deep down in the side of her, uh, inside of her. Um, it's always been there, this ability, back before even she opened her eyes to the world. And so, so there are these musical themes, um, both Annalise and Edeme both possess some extraordinary um, music ability. And so, so music plays a significant theme um, throughout. And so that's one of the reasons why um, I felt that it was so important to, um, to incorporate and be able to heighten the senses with some of those um, lyrical passages. We're speaking with Robert Gwaltney on this episode of Now Appalachia, his debut novel, and it is a beautiful book called The Cicada Tree. And we'll get back to talking about uh, the cicada tree here uh, in just a few minutes. But Robert, I wanted to ask you something we mentioned about you in the beginning of our discussion, and that is that you are also the fiction editor for the Blue Mountain Review. And I wanted to ask you to, to talk a little bit about the Blue Mountain Review, but also how is working or how has working and currently working as a fiction editor uh, for the Blue Mountain Review? How has that helped you as a writer when it comes to your own writing? So I, um, the Blue Mountain Review is an online um, literary uh, publication and um, that poetry, um, music, um, the arts really are all featured with, within that publication. And I, I came to um, be involved with the Blue Mountain Review because I actually submitted um, a short story to um, to the editor Charles uh, Clifford Brooks, who is the chief editor for the Blue Mountain Review, and um, and I got to know him, and he liked my work, and he invited me to be a contributing editor. Um, so currently, um, in regards to fiction, we we select about four four pieces in issue, and it, it, it's a quarterly publication. Um, it it's a huge responsibility when you read other people's work because, you know, let's say you've got a hundred submissions and you can only choose four. Um, so it, it's interesting to me to be a writer and to be on the other side where you're actually selecting someone else's work um, because you, you see so many lovely pieces, but you can only select four. Um, and it's stressful, you know, getting your work out into the world. So I feel a huge responsibility when I'm reading other, others' work um, and it's, it's, I don't know, it, I think because I am a writer and because I've, I've known the struggles with just trying to get my work out into the world, um, I take it, I take that responsibility extremely seriously. Very good. Very good. And I wanted to ask you a little bit too, um, uh, about, uh, being a champion for early childhood literacy. And I was having this conversation with another author that we interviewed uh, a little while back on the program. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a college professor and I know, you, you know, you, you've, you've gotten a, an advanced degree as a college student. I feel like a majority of issues that students struggle with at all levels uh, of education is the fact that they can't comprehend what they read. And I feel like that if you boil down students' lack of academic success, most of it is they just can't understand what they're reading. They can read, but they can't process, critically analyze, or synthesize what they're reading. Can you talk a little bit about your work with early childhood literacy, why you find that important, and, and what can we do as, as parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, godparents, whatever, uh, to, to help improve this? Because I feel like this is a, in the era of technology and social media and iPads and all these things, 
you know, we're getting away from, it seems like, from, from the importance of reading. Can, can you talk about what that, you know, your work in that and what can we do to encourage uh, early childhood literacy to, to get young people reading and reading more? Absolutely. So, so um, our focus is early education and care. So we're serving children um, from six weeks up to five years of age. And all of our children are living at or below poverty, which makes literacy challenges even more significant. Um, I mean, and, and this is a, this is a really um, frightening statistic, but children, um, uh, children up to age three living in poverty here, 30 million less words than their more um, affluent um, counterparts. So, um, which has a huge impact on brain development um, and which has a significant impact on um, an individual's um, literacy skills with literacy being a predictor of future academic achievement. So, you know, the point at which, you know, a child is born, you've got the, the, the first five years of a child's brain development is the most critical. During those first five years of life is when the brain is going to develop most significantly. So um, you've got a very short window to be able to impact that brain development. And, um, you know, um, with, with literacy being um, a critical developmental area that you would want to be able to support. So the work that we do you know, is even more important for those children that are living in poverty or children who have uh, a diagnosed disability, which might hamper their, their, their literacy skills. Very, very good. And, and I'm glad to hear that. And I'm, I'm so glad. I'm always amazed by so many authors, not just Appalachian authors, but authors all over the country who are working in that area to try to increase um, early childhood uh, literacy and childhood literacy uh, in general. So I'm really glad to hear you involved in that and, and glad to hear that it's going well. So if we were to walk into your office or your bedroom and look on your nightstand of, of, e of either uh, recently or uh, in the past month or so, what are some books we might find sitting on your nightstand or what are some <laughs> things we might see sitting oh on the desk in your office? Uh, in other I've words, what have you been reading lately that you really liked? Um, so I've got a lot going on. <laughs> so, uh, and I just put, so this was all, this is the, the, the Saints of Swallow Hill by Donna Everhart, um, which is a really great novel. And I'm looking for, and I'm actually going to go to um, one of her book launch events um, next weekend, next Sunday. Um, uh, let's see. And so there's this um, short story collection by a writer named River Jordan called Sugar Baby. Um which is, which is pretty amazing. I'm also reading a net galley arc of um, an Atlanta writer and friend. Her name is Kimberly Brock. The novel's coming out in April and it's um, the, um, the Lost Book of Eleanor Dare, um, which is gonna be uh, really amazing. I'm, I'm into a few chapters of it. And uh, let's see, oh, and I had my friend, um, Deborah Mantella's novel, My Sweet Vidalia, which is a great piece of Southern fiction. So those are just a few books. I always had books stacked all around me. So are, are you one of these readers, Robert, that can read two or three books at one time, or do you have to read one all the no, way before you start another one? one? One at a time. One. I would love to be able to read multiple books, but no, typically it's just one book at a time. Very good. The title of the book we're talking about today is called The Cicada Tree. The author is Robert Gwaltney. He's a graduate of Florida State University. This is his debut novel, and he also serves as the fiction editor for the Blue Mountain Review. And so, Robert, we'll, we'll get back to The Cicada Tree here uh, and talk a little bit more about, about these wonderful characters we were talking about a moment ago, Annalise and Marlissa uh, and Cordelia and, and all of this. One of my favorite scenes in the book 
was the scene at the talent show because it seemed like a Royal Rumble of, of events and circumstances. And one of the things we learned by the time we get there is, and we talked about sound and, 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 and that, the imagery of sound being a, a theme in the book. Um, you know, we learned that Annalise is a, is a wonderful pianist, uh, but we also learned that Marlissa is a talented pianist. Uh, and Marlissa, being sort of the, the, the spoiled rich child that she is, doesn't want to share the limelight with anybody. And she's not really used to being challenged, having her talents challenged. Then they get together at the talent show and it all just kind of blows up. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what happens there and the significance of that scene and kind of what happens after that? Sure. Well, so, um, so to, to, to not um, get into any spoilers, um, and I'll try to be careful. Um, so the, 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 the talent show is, is um, there's this huge um, town celebration. And, and part of this celebration is... Um, is um, this talent show and um, Marlissa and um, Annalise have both entered this talent show and um, what occurs in this talent show is part of a scheme that Annalise concocts that she hopes that that's going to finally bring her um, uh, is, is she's going to be able to pr- prevail over Marlissa Mayfield finally this is her one chance and she uses her dear friend Edna May to accomplish that goal. And it's um, what occurs during this talent show um, sets off this cataclysmic plague of cicadas, uh, this, this dangerous game of manipulation that Annalise is playing. And, um, and Edna May is, um, is a gifted singer. She was, she's what you would call a coloratura soprano. And, um, and Annalise suspects that sometimes Edda May uses her voice, her siren song to manipulate her and others. And she thinks that, that Edda May's singing can um, impact the natural world around her. So it is at this talent show that all hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminded me, it just reminded me of, of just, a, just a big free-for-all where every, everything just kind of explodes, I, not literally speaking, but you know, uh, okay. everything that we've been waiting for to happen with, with, with Annalise and Marlissa and their backstories and their parents and everything they've been through just kind of all comes together at that particular moment. Yeah. It was really just one of my favorite, favorite sections and, of the book. And I think if you were having to like, if you were you know, dividing the novel up into three acts, really that gala is really sort of the kickoff of the, the third act. Yeah, excellent, excellent, absolutely. Great. It's a great scene, one of my favorites. And I wanted to ask you a question about something you touched on a minute ago. We talked about uh, Claxton a minute ago. You mentioned Claxton, who's Annalise's father. One of the things that I thought was interesting about your book is that there's not a lot of male characters with with really lead part or lead roles or, or or lead scenes. And and when they do kind of come in, they tend to mess things up and make things worse. And I I just wondered if if characters like Claxton uh, and and some of the others. Uh, it, leaving those out of the story was was that by design or was that just something as you were drafting you realized you know I've got these these great strong older and younger female characters and this is kind of their story to tell uh how did all that come about in terms of sort of a lack of of male characters kind of having dominant scenes in your novel so I well since I was a boy I mean I'm a huge fan of, of old movies um, I've always loved, um, so I love those, that period of time in the 30s and 40s and 50s when women, um, when, when Hollywood is all about women pictures. So I love, I always loved female-driven voices. And the same for, for, 
for literature as well. And when I was telling this story, you know, I knew that I really wanted to focus in on, on Southern women with extraordinary gifts. Because um, each of the women, you know, in the story um, have something exceptional about them, especially the, the lead characters, Miss Wessie, Annalise, Grace, uh, Cordelia, Marlissa. Um, and so I did know from the beginning that men would play a secondary role and that it would be the women really who were left to, um, to clean up the mess um, that the that the men had, had had made and continue to make. Now I did. I, I wrote. There's a little boy named Abel Darlington, um, who you know I um, loved writing. And for me, you know, he's representative of of the hope and possibility of all the goodness that that um, that a man could be. Yes, absolutely. And we won't say too much more about that because right. they may give away some spoilers. But yes, you're right. He is a character that readers will want to keep an eye on because uh, he's a great character. and He also serves several important roles uh, in the story as well, particularly when it comes to portraying sort of the the the, the male part or the male presence uh, in the story, right. a male presence in the story. Yeah, very good. Um, I want to ask you, too, we talked a little bit about this before we started uh, recording. Uh, Moonshine Cove Publishing is your publisher, and you kind of had a, an interesting route getting connected with them. And this ties into sort of the COVID pandemic and everything that we've all been living through. How did you eventually get uh, hooked up with them and connected with them uh, from the time your uh, final draft of your manuscript was ready to be pitched to, to different sure. places? How did, you, how did you get with them and what's it been like working with them? We, I mean, you know, early on, back when I would, you know, so publication has been a lifelong dream of mine. And, um, you know, when I said, and I wasn't even sure that I would pursue an agent. I thought, you know what, I'd maybe I, I think maybe I'll just start out working with presses that, that will work with authors who are unagented, which, which just means that you don't have an agent. But when the cicada tree was done, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to, um, why not just attempt to get an agent? That's what I'll do. And um, so I, I queried some agents and I, I received literary representation and he was excited about the book and we got it um, out into the world. Of course, um, right after we got it out into the world, the pandemic um, hit. And of course, um, the world's turned upside down. And then, you know, I've got this Southern novel. And then when we are in, in the midst of, of, um, this pandemic, you know, just a lot of, of, of social unrest in the South. Um, and yeah, I was at that point concerned that, that, that I don't believe that my novel is controversial at all. I think that people were a little timid about, about Southern um, subject matter. Um, you know, I had a conversation with my agent and I said, you know, look, I really would, um, I've got to get the story out into the world. Um, I, I know that you would prefer that, that I wait, but I'm, I'm going to be 53 soon, and I, I believe that I have to get started. I really, at the end, my end game is to be able to write books and to be able to have a humble readership, you know, for, um, and that's what I need to start building now. I don't need to conquer the world. Uh, if, if I were to be a best-selling author, that would be a cherry on top. But um, for me, I just I just want to write, I want to publish, and I want to engage with readers, which I'm, I'm most excited about. So then I, um, I started querying smaller, so my agent was fine with that. He goes, okay, I understand. And, um, and so I came along Moonshine Co-Publishing, which is a small um, Southern press. And, um, you know, they've been great to work with. Um, one of the 
one of the perks of working with the smaller presses is that they have the opportunity to take chances on projects that uh, other larger presses might be a little nervous about. And um, I've had a lot of creative input from the cover, you know, to, um, to the design, to even being able to pitch the epilogue, which, which wasn't original to the manuscript that they approved. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been a positive experience. Of course, you know, there, there, there are um, probably, there are also some challenges with, with having smaller presses, you know, the reach isn't as great. But one of the things that I've learned is that regardless of whether you're with a large press or a small press, the amount of work that an author has to do to get the word out to the world about their work is the same. Um, unless you are a really big name, uh, they expect you to do all of that marketing and PR on your own. Yeah. And we've had several authors. I'm glad you said that because we've had several authors uh, on our show over the years that have kind of echoed the same statements you made about the marketing and PR. And they've said, you know, something to the effect of you write the book and it's published and you think you're finished. And then that's just part one of the journey. The second part is, as you said, the marketing and the PR and the connecting with readers and getting the word out about your book. Exactly. And, and one of the things that I had to submit, you know, that, that Moonshine Co. Publishing wanted to see and what a lot of presses want to look at, uh, what is your marketing plan in advance? Um, because you know, they're very upfront. They said, look, you know, we don't have the resources to be able to, to, to market um, your work, you know, we're, we're going to rely on you to do that and watch your approach. And of course, you know, they're going to want to return on their investment. So they're going to want to know that you have a handle on, on that, that you have a plan to be able to ensure that, that you can cast the debt as widely as you possibly can to be able to get the word out about your work. So Robert, as we finish up uh, today with you on the program, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk about uh, the cicada tree to talk more about um, Blue Mountain Review to find out more about the work you're doing uh, with uh, Easter Seals North Georgia or anything like that. How can they get in contact with you first of all? And then secondly, where can they get copies of the cicada tree? Sure. So uh, you can find me um, at my website, robertlgwaltney.com and all of the links to all of my social media are there. Um, you, can, you can message me directly uh, through the contact page on my, um, on my web on my website. I'm on Facebook and I am on Instagram. Um, and the Cicada Tree, you know, you can request a copy from your favorite local independent bookstore. Um, or, you know, if you don't have access to, to such a store, you can order online from Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Very, very good. We have been delighted to have with us today as our guest on Now Appalachia, Robert Gwaltney. He is a graduate of Florida State University is Vice President of Easter Seals North Georgia Incorporated, lives in Atlanta, Georgia, the fiction editor of the Blue Mountain Review, but most importantly, he is the author of this sensational new novel. It's called The Cicada Tree, and uh, this is so much more than a book about good versus evil and rich versus poor. We've been talking about some of those themes uh, on the program, but, but this is a book that's got allusions to art and literature and poetry and music and uh, so much of a book that is uh, layers of story uh, inside of the main story. And it's just a terrific novel. And I hope folks uh, will check it out. And Robert, it's, it's a great story. I know you've worked a long time on it, worked really hard on it, and all your hard work paid off because it's a terrific book. Congratulations on it. Uh, and we wish you all the best with, uh, with your promotion and, and your publicity. And uh, we look forward to having you on next time your next novel comes out. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. 
We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of Now Appalachia, as well as the executive producer of all the podcasts that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. So Pam, thanks so much for all the work that you do behind the scenes to make these podcasts possible. We could not do it without you, and we appreciate your work so much. We also want to take a moment to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.